people in coming near the cave, so we crept round very slowly, and suddenly, what do you think we saw? Well, what did you see? We saw Maul of the Graves, said Aline, and we stooped down at once and then ran away. She did not see us, as the back of her head was turned our way. I'm thankful for that, said Ian, and then recounted his experiences. He omitted the bone incident, but concluded by saying, We must be careful about that birch twig. She evidently set it as a trap. Do you suppose that she discovered the inner cave, the cave room itself? asked Audrey apprehensively. Not at all likely, said Ian. She cannot stand up straight even. Besides, she was not there long. Of that I am certain. Audrey gave a sigh of relief. But she may tell other people, said Ian. You must keep your ears open very carefully. It was an awe-inspiring prospect. The future certainly was not reassuring. In order to give a new turn to the conversation, Aline said, Do you know, the day before yesterday, I went over to Newbiggin and talked to several of the people. I did not ask any questions, but they told me a great deal of themselves. There evidently are some pretty fair scoundrels in the village, even on their own showing. What are you going to do? said Ian. I do not know yet, she said. I must find out some more, but I am tolerably sure that the villains are in the minority. I do not suppose there is much to choose, said Audrey. I should let them all go. Why trouble yourself? But, Audrey, Aline objected, you yourself hate unfairness. I cannot bear to think of Mistress Mowbray having her own way with those who are innocent. I think also my princess enjoys some other kinds of fighting than with foils, Ian interposed. Well, perhaps there's a little bit in that, too. My father was a fighter. Somehow, little one, said Ian, I cannot help wishing you would leave it alone. I feel you would be better to have nothing to do with Newbiggin. It sounds very silly, but old Maul lives in Newbiggin, and I have a strange dread of it that I cannot explain. That is very curious, said Audrey. So have I. There has been something weighing on me like a bad dream for many days. I cannot explain it. Aline, dear, you let it alone. I wish you two would not talk like that, said Aline, because I have had exactly the same feeling, and it is most uncanny. But I cannot give up the new big and people because of my feelings. Come, let us have some fun, she continued. We look as if we had not a backbone among us. She went to the sword chest as she spoke and took out a pair of foils. Now, this will do my stiffness good, and Audrey can act as umpire. They had a good deal of practice since the first encounter. Ian was really a brilliant master of the art, and was much amused at the way that Aline had completely hoaxed him. Aline made rapid progress, and Ian used to tell her that, child as she was, she would probably be able to account for a fairly average swordsman. So little was the art then understood in Scotland or England. After a bout or two they sat down to rest. "'You know,' said Ian, "'I think I ought to be leaving you soon. I am ever so much better than I was, and it would be well for me to be away.' "'Why?' said Audrey. "'Are you not comfortable here?' "'Of course I am comfortable,' he said. "'But I cannot stay here forever. It would not be fair to you. Besides, it is time that I was doing my work in the world.' "'But it would be terribly risky,' said Audrey. "'And after the narrow escape you had, I think you might consider you had done your share.' "'No, because I feel that I have something so valuable for people that it is worth any risk.' But look how you have suffered, and you will bring the same suffering to others. In fact, you hesitated about telling us. But that was because you are children, and somehow 
I do not feel that a child is called upon to undertake such great responsibilities. I do not see why a child should not judge, said Aline. It is all so simple and beautiful. If it is worth dying for, people should be glad to have it, whatever the suffering. I think I feel ready to die, like poor George Wishart. So if your going helps other people, even if it makes us very sad, you must go. When do you think you ought to start? I have a definite errand to undertake. I have never told you about it, but I am acting as a special messenger with some important papers, and I have been thinking it over, and have come to the conclusion that I should be leaving here in a week at most, but less if possible. What, so soon? exclaimed both the children at once. A deeper gloom than ever seemed to fall over the party as this was said, and although they tried to feel cheerful they knew it was a poor attempt. No one spoke for a long time. Ian sat with his head between his hands, and Aline gazed into the empty fireplace at the dead ashes of the fire that had been lit when Ian came. These days with Ian had made the Holwick life far more bearable for her. There were her Greek lessons and the fencing lessons, but bad as it would be to lose them, it would be worse to lose her friend. He was generally very reserved with her, but if she was in trouble, he always opened out. She glanced up. Ian had lifted his head, and their eyes met. What would she do without him? Audrey held one of the foils, and drew with it on the floor. The silence was oppressive. At length Aileen spoke. "'Where shall you go when you leave us?' You cannot think how sadly we shall miss you. I shall probably miss you more than you will miss me, sweet child. And Menstrie looked at her, with a strange longing pain in his heart. It was thirteen years since any one person had filled his life as this child had done, and now he was to lose her. Surely, he said to himself, life is compact of most mysterious bitterness. But he tried to be cheerful for the child's sake, and said, Never mind, Aline. I shall come and see you again. I think I shall try and become a packman like your friend who gave you your necklace, if I can get some money somehow to begin, and then I can pay many visits to Holwick. I believe I could disguise myself well enough, as I do not think that anyone here really knows me. The few that saw me will have forgotten. We can meet in this room, and I shall be able to bring you news and some interesting things from far away. Yes, do bring me a chatelaine, said Audrey. I have always wanted one, and father has either forgotten or been unable to get it. "'Is there anything you would like, Burdine?' said Ian, addressing Aline. Aline thought for a moment. Why should he bring her things? He was obviously poor, and never likely to be anything else. What was the younger son of a yeoman, who had been a wanderer, a smith, and a soldier of fortune, ever likely to have in the way of money?' Even her own father, who had been a small laird, had never been able to purchase her the necklace that he had so desired to do. "'I do not want you to bring me anything,' she answered finally. "'If only you can keep yourself safe.' And then she added, hesitatingly, "'Would a Greek testament be expensive?' "'No, not at all,' said Ian. "'Would you like one, little angel?' "'Yes, very much, indeed.' But, oh, I am afraid it will be a long time between one visit and the next, and we shall not know what has become of you. And Aline sighed. I think I could write to you sometimes, he said. We might get hold of Walter Margrove, who suggested something of the sort to you. And for greater security, we could make duplicates of the parchment, with the holes that you found in the book. I could write the letter so that it looked like an announcement of my wares. 
They discussed the matter for some time, and the next day set about making the parchment slips, and for the following few evenings they were busy with several preparations. Ian's clothes all had to be mended and put in good order, and they took some of the clothes that they had found in the secret room, and by slight alterations were able to make him a second outfit. They also found a leathern wallet that with a little patching made a sound, serviceable article. Ian further made a suggestion to Aline, in case they should have reason to suspect that the key to their correspondence was known. "'Let us take your name and mine,' he said, "'to make the foundation of a series of letters, and we will write the names downward, like this.' "'Yes, and what next?' said Aline. "'Well, after each letter we will write in order the letters in the alphabet that follow it. After A we will write B, C, D, E, F, G, and after L we will write M, N, O, P, Q, R.' and whenever we get to Z we start the alphabet again. So, if we write our names, it will look like this. Now, there are twenty-five letters in each column, and if we just put a number at the top of our communication, we shall know where we are to begin to use the sequence. I see, said Aline, if the number is fifty-one, we shall begin at the top of the third column. If it is fifty-six, we shall begin six letters down in the third column. And if it was one hundred seventy-six, said Ian, what should we do? Well, we should have to make another column the same way, and we should begin at the top of it. Now suppose the number is one. We shall then begin at the very beginning, and the way we should use the letters would be like this. Suppose this is the message. Arthur Melland wishes to notify the good people in the Lothians of the lasting excellence of his wares. His pack is regularly filled with all the newest materials, and, too, all is most marvellously finished in design." Our first letter was A, and the first A we find is the A of Arthur. Our second letter was L, and the next L we find is in Melland. Our third letter was I, and the next I that we find is in Wishes. Our fourth letter was N, and the next N that we find is in Notify. Oh, that's quite easy, said Aline. And so you mark them all like this. Arthur Melland wishes to notify the good people in the Lothians of the lasting excellence of his wares. His pack is regularly filled with all the newest materials, and, too, all is most marvellously finished in design. And then cut them out. Yes, said Ian, and the only other thing necessary is that the paper should first be neatly ruled with quarter-inch squares, and each of the key letters carefully written in a square. It does not matter about the others, but then, when the receiver gets the letter, he knows that the squares to be cut must be exactly an even number of quarter inches from the edge of the page. "'I hope I shall remember it, if needful,' Aline said. "'I don't,' said Audrey. "'Why not?' exclaimed the others in astonishment. "'Because I hope it won't be needed, and that would certainly be simpler.'" End of chapter 13